All right, I'm pretty psyched the next speaker is my brother, which means I am not at risk for mispronouncing his name. Now, when one of our staff people noticed the other day that my brother was speaking, she asked, you know, you do this lean startup stuff, your brother writes and speaks about it. Is your family running on a bedrock of efficiency? No, no, we are not. Um, but my brother was one of our most popular speakers last year. He has some really important information to share, and we're very pleased to have him back. Please welcome Dan. Hello, everybody. My name is Dan, uh, and I work, uh, I run with two other guys in uh, a tiny little software consulting shop in Boston called Huddy Labs, uh, and we work with startups uh, in a bunch of different ways. And what I'm going to talk uh, about today is about what I consider the first principles uh, underlying the lean startup. And I want to do this because I think understanding these principles, understanding sort of what's going on under the surface, is a huge competitive advantage. Uh, it lets you apply these ideas, which are very powerful, very broadly, to sort of different industries, different uh, stages of growth for a company, different types of companies. Um, but to do that, you need to understand why these ideas work and when they don't work, would be one way to say that. Um, and so before I get started, there's a sort of interlocking set of ideas I want to walk through. But I want to start with Eric Ries's definition of a startup. It's a human institution creating a new product or service under conditions of extreme uncertainty. Extreme uncertainty. Hold that in your head. Okay, here we go. Okay, the first concept I want to talk about is opportunity cost. To talk about this, uh, I want to use, I want to tell a story about Huddy, my consulting company. Uh, and, and I want you to imagine that we're trying to figure out what we're going to do with our next month. Uh, and we've got two people who want to hire us, and they want to hire us to do uh, just kind of coding work, which we actually mostly don't do at this point, but imagine. And sort of client A, um, they have a bunch of Photoshop documents, and they want to turn those into HTML, you know, CSS, cut them up. And they're happy to pay the market rate for those, which is roughly $20 an hour. But there's good news, which is they have like limitless numbers of these documents, and all three of us can get eight hours of work a day at this nice $20 an hour rate. Okay, that's client A. Client B is big data. It's a dupe, it's HBase, it's very sexy. Uh, and for that, they pay the market rate, which is $200 an hour, right? But there's a catch. They only have four hours of work a day for all three of us, three of us if we're going to sort of go there. OK, so A, B. So the question is, what do we do, right? Which one do we choose? Which of these clients do we work for? And I want you to imagine that one of my two partners, let's say my partner Matt, was to say, which he never would, like, guys, this is really easy. There's no problem here. We have to do the Photoshop work. And if Edmund and I were to say, well, why? He said, well, if we take the big data work, we're going to be sitting around for half the day not working. That's super inefficient. That's like a waste of our time. If we do that, it's going to look really bad if we do that, in fact. Um, whereas if we do the Photoshop work, we're going to be working really steadily and efficiently, and we'll make $160 a day. That's pretty solid, right? OK. Is Matt right? No, he's totally insane, right? That's a terrible idea. Look at the math, right? We're going to make $800 a day per person with the big data work, and only $160 the other way. So in fact, Edmund and I would be perfectly justified in saying to Matt, we're not making $160 a day. We're losing $640 a day. That's the difference. We're giving up the opportunity to make the $800 in order to make the $160. And that's opportunity cost okay, per person. right? And my first message is this is happening at your startup, like right now. People are choosing to work on stuff that's not that valuable. That's not the most valuable thing they could do. And it's costing your company a lot because they're giving up the opportunity to work on other stuff. Now, you might be thinking, OK, well, sure, but I doubt it's this huge difference, like this 20 to 200, because the stuff we're working on is pretty important, right? I mean, sure. Um, and so we can actually sort of answer that in an interesting way. OK. I want you to so imagine a relatively typical startup, typical in some sense, raises a Series A, hires 10 people, 
and one year later goes back to raise to Series B. Um, and I want you to imagine there can be sort of two outcomes and how they're valued, what their valuation is. Not how much they raise, but what their valuation is, what somebody who's willing to give them a big chunk of money thinks the overall company is worth. That's a really good proxy for how much their sort of value the individual actions are generating. Down one path, they worked on pretty valuable stuff, uh, and they're being valued at $20 million. Okay. Down the other path, things didn't go as well, and they're valued at $0, right? So one way you can look at this is that the people sort of did things. If you imagine, that's almost like the same startup that went down two different roads. The time it went down the road where they didn't make any money, one way to look at that is the opportunity cost is $8,000 a day per person because they were working on the wrong stuff, right? Also known as $8,000 a day, right? This like toy example, the $640 a day is nothing. And by the way, you're paying these people maybe $500 a day, just sort of back of an envelope. Um, so there's this tremendous cost to working on the wrong things. Now you might be thinking, um, if I were you, I would be thinking uh, about this example, two things. Um, well, sort of one is, it's not, you know, well, there's a fair amount of luck involved, right? Well, that's true, but my sort of belief is it's not all luck. And one thing that's nice about this huge sort of $8,000 thing is, even if there's like a lot of luck, even if it's like half luck, it's still $4,000 a day because you're working on the wrong stuff. And the other axiom is a little trickier, which is it's mostly not about who works harder. And I have, a f I have what I consider fairly strong evidence for that, which is who here has worked at a startup that failed? Anyone? Raise your hand. Did people like work hard at that startup? Yes. <laughs> Always. People work super hard at startups that fail. Um, and so it, at some level, what I'm saying is, if hard work and, and sort of luck are important, but they don't seem to really distinguish the ones that you know, succeed from the ones that fail, then the choices of what we're working on must be critical. That's actually your biggest lever, is what you choose to work on, and it has this huge differential effect. Um, and so one thing I'm saying is you should actually be terrified, like you should be very, very scared of working on the wrong things. I would say you should be so terrified that you actually don't work. Like if you're not sure that what you're working on is the most valuable thing to your startup, you should stop working. And I tell people this and they think I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. Like you should only work if what you're working on is the most valuable thing. Um, and you really shouldn't worry about working hard. Um, and especially what I mean by that is you shouldn't worry about looking like you're working hard. Um, and everyone gets this wrong, like, because human beings, when you get them into groups this way, and there's these conditions of extreme uncertainty, it's very hard for them not to work. They actually do the thing I described Mattis doing that we all sort of made fun of, which is it, they sort of feel like if they're sitting still, they're going to get in trouble. <laughs> like If they can't show their investors or their boss that they were doing something at all times, um, there's going to be a problem. So this is an opportunity for you is to sort of try to fix this. Okay, but there's a problem. Now we get to section two, which is information and money. In my little toy example, we knew if we do this thing, we're making $20 an hour. If we do this thing, we're making 200 Now, at a startup, like, no one tells you that, right? No one says, hey, you do this marketing campaign, it's worth $8,000 a day. You work on the back end of the database, that's worth $0 a day. You, just, it's, you don't know what's worth what, right? So what do you do? But you should be afraid that you're working on the wrong things. Well, let's go back. I'm going to go back to my toy example. And I, want to, I want to imagine, same setup. We have two potential clients, one with the Photoshop, one with the big data. But they won't tell us which is which. And this is like a funny setup. We know one is one and one is the other, but we don't know which is which. So what do we do? Well, we could work for one kind of at random. And half the time, we'd get the really good one, and half the time, we'd be losing the 640 a day. Sort of on average, we'd be losing 320 a day, actually. That's how it works. But what we should really do is we should spend a week researching. Like, let's say we can be sneaky, and we can talk to friends who work at the company or find out which one is doing a design job and which one is doing a big data job. And imagine that at the end of one week, we know for certain which is which, okay? So think about that. I want you to think is that week makes us money, okay? It does, that information that we gathered 
It's real money, and I really want to emphasize this. So you can think about it, like before that week started, we were going to sort of randomly lose 640 about half the time. After the week's over, we're never, we know for certain which one we're getting, we're always going to make the more money. And therefore, that, that information, that yes or no, which one is the better one, is worth a lot of money to us. And in fact, it's actually useful to think about it, and it's super important not to think about it as, oh, we had to do this thing, we had to do this research, and only then could we start to make money. Think about that week as making you money, because information, in the sort of context when you have a decision to make, is worth money. The same way that like a contract that you sign that you only get paid on when some later event happens is worth money. You don't consider that contract to be sort of some silly, you know, sort of rigmarole until you actually have the dollars in your bank account. You consider it as money as well. Okay, so now we get to the sort of next idea, which is risk and information. So this is interesting. I've had this idea that there's information as value when you're making a decision. But startups never have a single decision, right? In fact, they have what I call chained risks. That a whole sequence of things has to be true. And if they're all true, some lovely event happens for you. Your startup is worth a lot of money, or you get lots of customers, whatever. But they kind of all have to be true. And sort of a classic, very simple one for essentially every startup is, can we build it? And if we can build it, will they buy it? Which are often called sort of a, you know, technical risk and market risk. Um, and you know, what's interesting here is, well, what's the value of knowing the answer of one of these questions? Right before we had this sort of idea that, you know, or which question should we answer first? Whereas before I was sort of talking about this sort of very simple yes, no. Okay, well, to talk about that, about these sort of chains of risk, I want to talk about two different kinds of startups, or two imagined startups. Um, the first one I want to imagine is building a teleportation device. Uh, and you can imagine there's some guys at MIT, uh, and they have a lab and quantum mechanics, and they can, they can take a, a, an entire molecule of salt and teleport it across their lab to the other side. And they're very excited by this, as they should be. Uh, and they come to you, and let's say you're sort of an investor or an early employee, and they say, if we can just spend a couple years researching, maybe three years, we're fully confident that we can teleport a human being very safely anywhere on Earth for $1,000. Okay, that sounds great. That's startup A. Startup B is, is very different. It's just this enterprise CRUD app. Does anyone know what a CRUD app is? CRUD app is like the simplest, dumbest kind of app an engineer can make. Um, and uh, they, there's this very simple app that somebody, he has a doctor friend who works in hospitals, let's say, this is health IT, um, and he has this simple app that it will take maybe three, six months to build that he's convinced that hospitals will pay $10 million a year for. Okay. So these two startups um, both face the same question, which is what should they do first? They both have to sort of prove out whether or not they can build it, whether or not people will buy it. And the question I'm going to ask is, and you can see it here, is, well, what do you do first? What should they each do with their first month? And the answer for the teleportation one is really easy, right? They should try to build it. And in fact, if what in fact happened is, like the CEO of the teleportation thing came to you, the early investor, and they said, look, I've done the lean startup thing, and I built a really pretty brochure, and I printed it up, it's really nice, and I took it to a bunch of people, and I actually got them to pay me $1,000 for like when we're ready to do teleportation. Wasn't that awesome? You know, you'd be like, no, you're totally fired, right? Like, that's incredibly useless. Like, we, why, why would you possibly do that? Go back to the lab. Like, maybe see if you can teleport, like, two crystals of salt, you know? Or, like, a shaker or a rat or something, right? But, what, like, who cares that you sold this thing? That's, like, totally stupid, right? Um, whereas at the CRUD app, it's the opposite, right? If the guy was like, well, we had this, like, crappy demo, but, man, it was crappy. So we spent a while building a really nice database, and that's all really good, and we're ready to scale it up. And, and you're like, well, have you, have you talked to any hospitals? You're just like, no, no, we haven't done that. You'd be like, you're fired, right? <laughs> like, that's a terrible, terrible idea. What are you doing? Go to the hospitals. And because $10 million, why are they going to pay it? So here's my question for you. What's different about these two stories, right? We have profoundly different intuitions about what we should do in these situations, intuitions which are correct about why we should do different stuff. But why? Why are these so different? 
the answer I'm going to give is what I'm going to call the degree of surprise. Okay? So when somebody finds out that a human being will pay $1,000 to be teleported anyone on Earth, you actually kind of already knew that. You're not surprised. There's no surprise in that. Um, and, and correspondingly, when the person building the CRUD app has you know, got it partially built in a month, you're not particularly surprised by that. One way to say that is, with the teleportation thing, is essentially you already knew, mostly, you weren't totally certain, but you were almost certain that people would pay for it. So finding out that, yes, it's actually not very much information. Uh, and there's this idea that information is actually equal to surprise, this idea of surprise of what I'm talking about. Um, and there's actually a sort of uh, a very nice um, mathematical theory behind this by Claude Shannon. Um, if, if you like math, information theory is, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, but the key idea is that we only get information when there's uncertainty and risk. So basically, the, one way to look at that is you can only be surprised when, when there could be something you don't know. Right? If you largely know something, there's no surprise, there's no information. Now, looking back to what I was saying a moment ago, I was talking about the value of information in the context of decision. Like, you can put a dollar figure on how much information is worth. What I'm talking about now is actually the amount of information. And those are actually not, those are sort of orthogonal, which is kind of cool, actually. Um, which is basically, you, you actually don't get much information when you already knew something. You get a lot when you're uncertain. And then sort of which information is valuable depends on what your decision you're making. So those things are sort of related. Now, I want to sort of switch to Steve Blank's definition of a startup for a second here. A startup is a temporary organization formed to search, search for a repeatable and scalable business model. So one way to understand that is that when I describe that sort of little toy story about HUD-8, where we did a week of research and then a month of actually getting paid for something, a startup is just that week, right? A startup is a startup because it's an information-gathering entity. That's sort of what makes it a startup. Um, and part of the reason I want everyone to understand these principles, rather than just sort of the tactics and the specifics of what you do is, is that all, this, this, this is entirely true, but unfortunately, there's not like one day that you wake up and you're no longer a startup, and now you have a repeatable and scalable business model, and you just execute. It doesn't work that way at all. It's like you gradually get sort of more and more evidence that you're onto something, and you sort of your business kind of changes gradually over time until at some point it's more executional. Um, and then, of course, you have to sort of figure out how to be information gathering again. And part of the reason these principles are so valuable to fully understand is that it lets you operate carefully as you're moving along that spectrum, and it lets you sort of help your teams figure out how to operate at these sort of different points uh, along the path. Okay, so now I want to talk about information in time. Um, and so here I want to talk about rates of change. Um, so one way to think about rates of change is like speed, you know, or like a car, velocity is measured in high school physics, say, in, in, in meters per second. Um, or a car uh, has a speed that's in miles per hour, right? Miles divided by hour. And one way to look at that is in terms of the units. So, or, or meters is a measure of distance. Seconds are a measure of time. So when I want to say that is velocity is a measure of distance over time, distance per time, right? Okay. Revenue, something that companies really care very deeply about, could be measured in dollars per month or dollars per year or whatever, right? Which is therefore a measure of money over time. How much money are you making in a, in a given unit of time? And revenue is very, very important. So profits are the key, but revenue is key. But I've just said is that you really want to think about information as money. At a startup, when you're in a search, information is the primary form of money. Like That's how you're actually making money. Getting more value for your startup um, is by getting the, more, the most important information. So therefore, the revenue is really best thought of as information over time. So what I'm trying to say here is that the thing you're kind of trying to sort of make your whole company function, the way you're kind of make your company sort of make more money, is more quickly gather information, right? And not just in some vague sense, but sort of valuable information. How fast can your team gather information? That's the sort of key thing you want to go after. And again, real money. Okay. 
Uh, and so now we get to the sort of putting a bunch of stuff together and this risk information in time. This is sort of the point of the talk, to be honest. This, like, this is, these ideas sort of all fit in a certain way, and I wanted to kind of get here. Uh, and so this is also the part where I think it's fun. And I'm going to tell this one almost purely in a story. So uh, let's go back to our health IT thing. You built this, you've got this demo thing, and you've got this, this CRUD app you're building for uh, someone for hospitals. And I want to say, instead of just being a CRUD app, I'm going to adjust it slightly, the story, and imagine that there's a public data source that you're using in, in addition to the CRUD app, something that like Todd Park, who spoke last year, they, you know, they've put out on um, some data set about doctors, say, uh, and, you, and you're taking that data set and collecting it and doing something with it and then presenting it to the hospitals. Okay, so imagine that. Uh, and you've done the right thing. You've actually done a, like a, a demo based on that. You sold it to hospitals, and in fact, they were willing to pay $10 million. You got one hospital to give you a check for $10 million or a contract, a promise for $10 million. Uh, and that's great. You did the right thing. So now your sales team is out there trying to repeat that and sell the second one, and you've got a bunch of engineers now building that thing. And I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine a junior developer, someone on the team, bright guy, but young, a guy or girl, uh, um, and that it's uh, well, some morning, it's a Thursday morning, and they're, they're, they, they were given the job of taking the demo app and turning it into a real production system, and they're working with this public data set, and they discover, to their surprise, that it's not as comprehensive as everyone thought it was. It worked well for the demo, but for the actual hospital, it's actually not going to work. The whole product that they've sold is actually not going to succeed the way they've done it. They have to do it some other way. Okay. In the moment after this person makes this discovery, the biggest risk for the startup has changed, right? The, big, the biggest risk is no longer can we repeat this sale. The biggest risk is can we actually build the thing that we promised in the first sale that we thought we could build, but we just discovered we were wrong, okay? So if the biggest risk has changed, the thing you should be doing to gather the most information has changed because the, the way you gather the most information is by going after your biggest risk. And therefore, the thing that's going to get you the most information and therefore the most money has changed. And therefore, as long as the company is still doing what it was doing before that discovery was made, they're, they're, they're doing the wrong thing. Um, and one way to look at this is that in order for your company to move fast, the entire organization the thing that will limit them in how fast they can move and how fast they can make money is how fast they can respond to the changing nature of risk. Because it's, if, if sort of only by going after the biggest risk you make the most money and risks are changing all the time, the entire organization has to be able to sort of change direction. And this, really nobody gets this. This is the competitive advantage I want to give you. If you can organize your company this way, it's a huge competitive advantage. I want you to think about the story I just told about the junior developer. I, I've been that junior developer, I've worked with them. Nine times out of 10, they have no idea why they're doing what they're doing. They were told, collect this data, clean it up some, put it in here, we're already behind, work late, get it finished, right? They, so they don't say to anybody, this is incomprehensive data. They don't even know what it's for. Or if they do, somebody tells them to stop talking and get this thing done because they're, they're on deadline and they're behind and they promised a lot of stuff. Um, and then, you know, so there's these like, periods of weeks or months where everyone's working on the wrong thing because people aren't paying attention to the, sort of what reality is telling them about the changing nature of risk. This is why people work on stuff that loses them $8,000 a day is because they're not focusing on the things they need to. So in summary, in the presence of extreme uncertainty, you make money by extracting information from reality. The most valuable information is that which reduces uncertainty about the largest in a chain of risks. Uh, and to acquire information quickly, the entire team, the whole organization, must constantly adjust its understanding of risk. Um, now, there's actually turning these principles into practice is fascinating to me. This is something we, HUD8, think about, work on a lot, and we work with our clients sometimes on this kind of thing. It's a, like, a very, very interesting question, and it's sort of non-trivial. How do you get an entire organization to work this way? But I'm actually not going to talk about that right now. I want to close with something else, 
which is what I think is the sort of most important thing to understand, the most important sort of barrier to getting these things to work, if you have, say, a group of human beings operating in conditions of extreme uncertainty, which is fear. Um, and fear is a profoundly important driver in how people behave in conditions of uncertainty. The story about, like, you know, one thing is the team will be very afraid of looking like they're not busy because they'll feel, it, people interpret that and they will tell you this, that it looks like people don't care. Don't you know how important it is? Like, why are you not working long hours? I'm the wrong thing. You know, like, that's, it, it's very, very powerful. Um, they will hurry. They will demonstrate to you how afraid they are by being kind of sloppy and moving fast. But there's the, the most important place that fear lurges, sort of, uh, sort of lodges itself, is in the heads of your CEO. And specifically, one of the things that I've seen this over and over again in startup CEOs is what I just described, uh, they have a lot of fear. And what I described a startup, understanding the current state of a startup, as sort of a chain of risks, which then have little risks within them. Can we do this? And if we can do this, what about this other thing? And that requires this. And there's that sort of nature of that and, and whatever. Startup CEOs don't call that a chain of risks even to themselves, what they call it is their vision. They have this vision that all those things will be true, and in fact, they can't get out of bed in the morning sometimes without kind of ritually convincing themselves that the things that are most unlikely to be true are somehow going to work out and be true. Um, and what they will do, and startup CEOs tell me this, and when they do, I'm like, oh my god, I should do a whole presentation about how you're thinking wrong, um, is they say, like, I can't let the team know that this thing might not be true, because if, if, I, if I let them know that, they'll be demoralized. Oh my God, <laughs> like, like really, you're, what you're doing, if, if your team needs to go after the biggest risk to gather information, and you're preventing them from doing that because you want to pretend those risks don't exist, you're forcing your team to fail, and I promise you, you will blame them for not executing at the end of the day. So, um, so basically, like, don't do that. That's my message. Um, so one of the things I want to tell you is go change your organizations. Don't work this way. Get the whole organization sort of oriented around information and risk in this way. It's a huge advantage. Or as you may find. Start your own team. <laughs> Start your own organization if you have to. Um, so uh, that's my main talk for today. Um, we talk about sort of some of those principles on our blog, uh, and I'm always happy to talk more about this. So thank you. <laughs>